listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, fishermen, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listening area on the West Marin Coast are the Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, which together protect 4,581 square miles. These National Marine Sanctuaries are well situated in one of the most productive ocean ecosystems in the world here in California. The oceanographic system that generates tons of nutrients for a diverse food web support highly migratory animals, but many local ones as well including ones that we can eat. Kirk and Camilla Lombard are a husband and wife team that started and run a community-supported fisheries membership program in the San Francisco Bay Area. They lead educational coastal fishing and foraging walking tours and are salty sea shanty musicians. Kirk is the author of The Sea Forager's Guide to the Northern California Coast, which was published by Heyday Books in 2016. In this guide, you can learn about a rich variety of sustenance for those willing to work for it. So I'm really thrilled to welcome Kirk Lombard to Ocean Currents today. Kirk, welcome to Ocean Currents. You're live on the air. Well, thank you for having me. So I understand you're busy at work and you've got some black cod hanging around right now? <laughs> yeah, just, I just, uh, I am sitting on a forklift. <laughs> Uh, I'm actually going to move, but uh, I just offloaded my buddy, went out with his uh, really bad flu, and uh, and caught me uh, 700 pounds of black cod the other day, and uh, now it's here at the warehouse that I use, and it's going to get all filleted up tomorrow and sent out to all my customers. Sounds good. Well, we'll talk a little bit about the CSA a little bit later on. I want to start just talking about the book, The Sea Forager's Guide, is part natural history guide, fishing instruction, nutrition guide, stewardship stewardship advice, and salty lore, and to me is a culmination of a lot of experience and unique in-depth knowledge. What was your process for writing this book and launching your CSA? Um, yeah, so my process for writing this book, that's interesting. Um, uh, basically, the process was working 12-hour days and then coming home and trying to stay awake <laughs> in the garage while I, while I typed out this uh, ever-expanding ever project that uh, I thought would be a little shorter, but then it, um, it kind of grew and then it grew, and, and then I decided to do sort of the whole everything, the mollusks and small fish and large fish, and it's kind of a guide for people who want to go out and get their own stuff, um, particularly fishing from shore, which is kind of my gig. Um, I do these walking tours around San Francisco and in some of the areas around San Mateo County Coast and um, take people out and kind of just kind of jam on on uh, 
on fish. We just kind of geek out over fish and mollusks and some of the seaweeds and stuff. And um, and it's fun because it, it, I have a sort of a natural tendency to to like performing. I come from a family of performers, Broadway performers. <laughs> And, uh, and I like, I just, you know, I've always enjoyed uh, having an audience and uh, telling fish tales. So that it kind of really fell into my lap. So, But the process of writing this was um, how, do I, how do I write something like this that just doesn't become dry and stuffy? So because if it was dry and stuffy, I'd be falling asleep. I was so tired. While I was writing most of it, I had to entertain myself. And the way to entertain myself was to make it funny. So the, the feedback that I'm getting is that the book is very entertaining, which um, makes me happy to hear. It's definitely entertaining. It's been part of our bedtime routine with my seven-year-old son, who's quite obsessed with fishing. And you're definitely contributing to this obsession. So thank you for that. Um, but the no, I mean, what you're sharing here in this book is a lot of knowledge. And a lot of this is typically knowledge that's passed on human to human it's not just something you read on the internet or research in a paper. Tell me a little bit more about how you, how did you learn all this stuff? Maybe a hundred or so species that you write about here, and tell us a little bit more about your background of being a fisher person and a sea forager. So I just, I've always been, just I don't know, I don't, since I was a little kid, I've just always been very interested in wildlife. And when I came to California, my I had been an avid fisherman on the East Coast, and I came to California, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago. And um, and I just uh, fell in love with the coastal ecosystem here. And my grandfather had grown up in Santa Cruz, the Monterey Bay area, and used to regale me with stories of salmon and lingcod and, and all this stuff. So it was kind of like a magical land to me as a little kid. And then I ended up living here a little further north than my than my grandpa did. But, yeah, I just kind of got into the the fishing culture here and then that sort of uh landed me with a um, a job working for the Pacific States Marine Fisheries Commission as a surveyor which was um was kind of like feeding my addiction you know cuz cuz then it it was like my my day job was walking around San Francisco and and beaches and piers and launch ramps all over the bay area and checking everybody's fish, <laughs> which is kind of like I would take on my days off. That's what I was going and doing, you know. And and then all of a sudden I had this job where uh, my job was to go around, find people, catalog all the different species they were catching, have conversation. And, um, and I was already so deeply immersed in all this that it was kind of difficult, uh, or I should say uh, it was very easy to uh, to expand on my knowledge base because I was already there, and then all of a sudden – meeting all these people and getting a lot of stories. What is the Pacific States Marine Fisheries Commission? I don't hear about it very often. So what are, what's the role of that in terms of fisheries? Is it California? I guess it's interstates between Washington, Oregon? or Six years ago that I worked for them. But I did work for them for at least six years. So, But uh, to my knowledge, their, their main, well, as far as what I was doing for them, it was about gathering data. You can go and, and Anyone can go and, and check out their website, it's PSMFC, and, uh, and you can read all about them better than I can tell you on the phone. That leads me to think about the observations that you were having with people that were catching stuff. And in one part of your book, you t- in terms of talking about access, you talk about peer fishing and that people don't need to have a permit to fish on public piers. Why, why is that? 
We have a process in California where everybody has a fishing license, but why do people that fish on piers not need a fishing license? Yeah, you know, it's a really good question. I'm not exactly sure why. I just know that that's the rule. Um, It has something to do with the money that paid for the piers. Wildlife Conservation Board money, I guess, was used in... Now, don't quote me on it. So, you know, a lot of these this sort of finagling of regulations and stuff I'm not so so big on. So, again, you can find that with a – you don't need me to answer that question. It's just anywhere in the state of California, you can fish two rods on any public pier. That The definition of a public pier is, is not necessarily what you might think. So, for instance, the ferry pier in San Francisco would seem to be a public pier, right? But it's not considered one. So if you're fishing on that pier – you only get one rod, and you have to have a license. If you're fishing on the South Jetty, the Half Moon Bay, that is considered a public jetty, so you can fish two rods or two lines, and you don't need a license. A very good place to find information as to which of the man-made structures are actually considered public is on Ken Jones's wonderful website, Pure Fishing in California, and anybody can go and get a whole list of all of the uh, public piers in the state of California. It's really a great, I don't want to say program, but it's really a, a great thing in California that you have this opportunity to fish and you don't need to pay for it. You can just hang out on public piers. Unfortunately, a lot of the best fishing isn't on those piers. That's right. what I found. So, <laughs> so I mean, uh, nevertheless, it'll get you out and it'll get you fishing if you're, if you're low on funds. So you're you're pretty clear about the importance of following the rules in this book in terms of making sure you're following the the catch limits and size limits and taking care of the habitat for species for sustainability to have along. What do you what do you encounter when you're out in the field and you see people that clearly aren't? What are ways that you approach people that are just you know are not abiding by best practices for fish and mollusks? Well, I yell at them a lot. <laughs> you know, I yell at them, uh, give them stink eye, uh, take photographs. <laughs> you know, there's also there's also just the fact that even you know sometimes following the regulations isn't really in, but enough. So I'm, I'm like thinking about this this past herring season. I'm saying past; it's still on, but I think it's it's dwindling down right now. But I just, you know, I saw there's there's no actual sport limit on herring, and I think there should be. I don't think it should be as small as they're talking about making it, because if you if you weigh it against the the commercial fishery, for for God's sakes, it's a, it's a, a pittance, even even with the sort of abuses of herring that are happening right now. In any case, they should put some kind of limit on it because we can't have people backing up pickup trucks to, to the San Francisco shoreline and just filling the backs of the trucks and, and driving off with six garbage cans fill, you know, full of herring. I mean, it, it just boggles the mind. It's, uh, and, and I get it. I, you know, on a certain level, you can make the case that at least those people are most probably eating those herring. Some people are rolling their eyes as I say this because a lot of that's probably getting sold on the black market. But I think... For the most part, people are eating it, which is awesome. Most of our herring gets shipped off to Japan, or at least the roe does, and aren't really consumed locally, at least a very small fraction of the catches. In any case, yeah, so so in the case of herring, you know, just, I just, you know, there were a couple of times this year where I just, I, I had to go over and say something. I mean, I, I'm fishing next to this couple of guys, and I mean, really, I mean, is 2,000 pounds really what you need to catch as a, for, as a sport fisherman? And, and you're doing that because, yeah, okay, there's no restriction on it. It's not there's – no, there's no ceiling on how many you can catch. But 
So legally, you're okay, but what about ethically? Is that, I mean... So what do you think they're doing with 2,000 pounds? You mentioned black market. What is that about? You know, I don't want to speculate too much on that, but, you know, think about it. I mean, what, what, what could put someone... I mean, unless... That person's family is huge, or they're you know maybe they're giving them out in the neighborhood and becoming the most popular person in the neighborhood or something. I guess, but it, it seems that you know it would seem that when you see that over and over and over again, yeah, well, I would think that uh, some of that's getting sold. Wouldn't you think that? Maybe I'm wrong. It could be I I don't have phone numbers and you know I, I haven't followed through on it, but it seems a logical conclusion. It could be wrong. I'm I'm open to it being wrong. I think a lot of it and is is eaten. Uh, and like I said, there's there's something to be said for that because our herring fishery is by and large not consumed locally. It's uh, it's all shipped off to Japan, or not all, but most of it. That's my take on it. But in any case, I just don't like to see. I, there's just something wrong with like one guy standing over the net taking 1,100 pounds of fish. Now I took a lot of herring this year. You know, I'm gonna I pickle them and I I give jars of pickled herring to my friends. We must have God, we must have done. I don't know, 50 jars of them. I think probably my whole catch for the season was 200 pounds. That's a lot, you know. Is that the best way to prepare herring, is pickled herring? I haven't heard of other ways to eat herring. Um, One of of the ways that's really cool is to to do them on a stick and, uh, and throw them on a grill. The the person the there's a restaurant that does this really well called Fish Restaurant in Sausalito, Marin County restaurant, and they do they do some amazing things with their herring. You know the hard thing about herring is that they've got a lot of scales, and you know they're small. They're not tiny small. They're not as small, say, like a night smelt or anchovy. You know, but it requires a lot of work. So like, you know, you get a 38 pound bucket full of herring. That's the 38 pounds is about what a a bucket weighs, a five-gallon bucket. And and you think, oh, that's great. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to fillet all these fish and scale all these, you know. And then eight hours later, you're still doing it. Mm. Uh, so it's, this is, I think, sort of might be part of the problem with them. But, you know, I mean, restaurants should be able to handle that. And it's nice to see that there are some places that are really getting into the local herring. Most of those people pickle it. Uh, I'm I'm a big fan of the pickled herring and the grilled herring. And then taking the fillets, you can pretty much do anything you want with those fillets. You can bread them and, and uh, pop them in the skillet. That's, you know, that's nice. Our, our herring, by the way, are much less fatty than, than the herring uh, one associates with, uh, with things like kippers, right? I think uh, when kippers are caught, they're not caught while they're spawning. Our fish are caught while they're spawning. They're living off their fat reserves, not really feeding when they're in the bay, and they're, they tend to be leaner. So when you, you know, people are probably thinking, listening says, well, why don't they, why don't you smoke it? You can smoke our herring, but you, we found that you have to kind of add some fat content to really get them to approximate uh, their their Atlantic cousin in, in smoked deliciousness. So those are my thoughts. Well, I look forward to trying some fresh herring sometime. So you have yeah. some black cod on hand, and I, I'm thinking about we've had some pretty calm weather lately, which I understand are good conditions for fishing for black cod. Can you talk a little bit about the process of how black cod is caught? I understand it's one of our more sustainable rockfish species. It's not a rockfish. It's in its own it's in its own family. I think it's closer to a skillfish than a rockfish, and it's not a cod. It's uh, the other market name for black cod is sablefish. It's uh, so again. It's not. It's not a rockfish. Uh, it is associated sometimes with rockfish because they part of the bycatch, especially in a longline fishery, can be various types of deep water rockfish. I want to make it clear, I'm not a black cod fisherman. It's you know way offshore, 
way past my field of expertise, but I, I've dealt with enough blackhawk fishermen, and I have uh, enough of them as buddies that I can t- I tell you a little bit about it. You know, they they have to go out and talk to Jake today on fishing vessel CDK out of Halfman Bay. He's a guy that does a lot of dock sales, so if folks are in the Halfman Bay area and they want to buy fish, they should go and buy off Jake. He's there on the weekends. He sells his crab. He sells his blackhawk. I'm just giving a pitch for him. Uh, <laughs> it's been a hard year for everybody. Uh, but Jake goes out. The, the, the funny thing about Jake is, you know, he and I were um, – we're colleagues working for the Pacific States Marine Fisheries Commission. Now I run a seafood company, and I do uh, coastal walking tours. And Jake's a, a black cod, crabber, salmon fisherman. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's a little bit ironic. But in any case, um, yeah, so Jake told me that it took him six hours to get out to the black cod grounds from Half Moon Bay. Um, his trip was supposed to be three days. Um, he uses pots. So there, there's two ways, typically in our area, um, the, the two most sustainable methods of catch for black cod would be the bottom long line and the uh, the trap um, the trap fishery. So Jake just fishes at open access, so I think he's allowed 1,300 pounds per trip or something. I don't want to say exactly what it is because I don't know. But uh, he went out, and he was going to do a three-day trip, and he got a really bad case of the flu out there. And he was all alone. He didn't have a deckhand. He was going by himself to try to, I guess, save a little money. And uh, so his trip was only one day, and he caught – he did pretty good, and he caught enough fish to take care of me and all my customers. Um, But, yeah, so, I mean, it's a a lot of work uh, doing Black Hot, and uh, it's not without its dangers. It's – you know, you got those – those pots, and the pots are all – well, not not all, but uh, they're daisy-chained five or six uh, to to each other. And anytime you have that kind of weight and you're pulling it up off the ocean, there's possibilities for injuries and all kinds of things, yeah, mm-hmm. especially when you're going all the way out there, right? Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not easy. It's why not? It's, you know, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Totally. Um, hey, for folks so, uh, tuning I just want to take a quick pause here and reintroduce you. For folks tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and I'm talking with Kirk Lombard, who's taking a break from processing fish and bringing fish in to distribute through his CSA. And we're talking about his book, The Sea Forager's Guide to the Northern California Coast. And um, I want to talk about the monkey face eel. What's the monkey face eel all about? You have quite a fondness for them and understand you had a record at one point catching the largest one. And as someone who explores the intertidal zone frequently, I usually see these little ones. So these big ones that you write about are perplexing to me. How, How do you get them and what do you do with them? Yeah, you know, I, I I leave them alone now because I feel like I killed so many of them over the years. I'm, you know, I've got some payback coming to me. So um, I kind of leave eels alone. Occasionally I can get them and put them in my TSA box as a store item people can buy. But as far as monkey-faced eel, it's not really an eel. It's a prickleback, which is an eel-like creature. subsists mostly on, on algae, so on marine algae seeds. Uh, various uh, species of seaweed. When you when you clean this, this animal or fillet it, you will always find in its stomach that it that its uh, its guts are just loaded with seaweed, and you never find anything else. I've never, in all these years of catching monkey face eels and cutting them open, I always whenever I um, whenever I catch my own fish, I always check out what they've been eating. This is especially exciting when you catch a cabazon, by the way, to see uh, cabazon have. have 
some incredible abilities to to eat things like gumbo chitons and and what? abalones. I found abalones, whole abalones, in the stomachs of uh, of of cabazons. And I don't know how they do it, but I don't think it's legal. I, you know, they're not measuring <laughs> them, and they don't have an abalone gauge. So, in any case, you know what? You know, it's very interesting. Once I found in the stomach of a cabazon, uh, the whole stomach of this cabazon was loaded with uh, the siphons of horseneck clams. How do they it's get those? To me. That's they're just so you know those horseneck clams are deep in the mud. What yeah, are you... that's what I don't understand. I don't understand because so I caught this cabazon. Uh, you know, where you always catch cabazon on the rocks, and uh, there it was. You know, I cut it. Oh, you can't. I mean, there's nothing. There's nothing else that a horse neck clam siphon could really be. I, you know, it's, they're very distinctive. They have like a, a skin on them and, uh, and, and a, a very distinctive head, like a, uh, sorry, um, siphon, right? The, uh, the tip of the siphon. I don't know what that is called anatomically. Anyway, yes, the whole stomach of this cabazon is loaded with those. And I, I, maybe he made a foray into a muddy Bay? I don't know. Very strange. Hmm. Um, in any case, monkey face eels always have seaweed in their stomachs. This is part of the reason I think when you cut them open, why they're they're just so wretchedly. The, the smell of the guts of a monkey face eel is really something to to behold, or not. Maybe you, if you're <laughs> if you're squeamish, it's not what you want to smell. And some people feel that 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 scent that you get when you cut them open permeates the meat. I've had people just recoil from monkey face eels. And then I've had people who are just like, this is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> so, Do you, I mean, I'm somewhere I, in between those two. I suppose <laughs> so. you have to fillet it pretty quickly then, huh? And eat it, eat it. I think it's more about just making sure you don't pop the guts when you... When you when in you a closed space? Yeah. Well, right, yeah. Better do, do them outside. They're, you know, it's a bizarre animal because it's just also very, very difficult to uh, to dispatch, you know, because you, you want to be, be reasonably... Uh, kind, you know, to the creature that you're eating for dinner. You don't want it to suffer uh, unnecessarily. The problem with that is that monkey face seals just, I mean, they're they're like the freaking, uh, trying to think of a boxer. <laughs> uh, they're like the Jake LaMotta of fishes, right? Because they, they could just take it. Just like, I mean, you can hit them on the head. I, when I first started doing this, and I was selling them, this is years ago, I uh, I brought a bunch into a restaurant. I had broken their necks and gutted them. Okay, you got to figure that's pretty much a dead animal, right? I, you know. And uh, then I put them in a tray, and the, the chef was coming over. And then all of a sudden, we heard these screams uh, from the kitchen staff. And I, we ran back there, and uh, lo and behold, the eels, with their guts gone and their necks broken, were crawling all over the sink. Oh my and god! Several of them had spilled out onto the floor, and they were flopping around. <laughs> And so I don't, uh, it's just a strange, yeah, a strange creature. Um, I, you know, I found that um, creatures that live in the intertidal zone, uh, that being the, the zone between high tide and low tide, uh, creatures that live in there, they're very resilient and very tough because first they've got the waves crashing down on them, then they've got a lot of other creatures that they have to compete with, and then they have low oxygen. So there's going to be times in a monkey face seal's life when it is stuck under a rock with two inches of water and has to wait for the whole tidal cycle to turn around. And it has to be able to survive, so it's it's hard to kill. They're pretty, they're pretty tough. Even if you've diatribe. Got... I just gave you a diatribe. Oh, my God. <laughs> now okay. I'm going to be dreaming about eels. It sounds more like a nightmare. Hey, we're coming up on um, a half an hour here. We need to take a quick, short station break, if you wouldn't mind, just holding on the line.
And we'll come okay, back in a little bit, and I want to hear about your um, your abalone diving experience at Tomales Point. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's pretty fun to read about that. So we'll be right back. Right. Folks tuning in, this okay. is Ocean Currents here on KWMR, and we've been talking with Kirk Lombard, the author of The Sea Forager's Guide to the Northern California Coast. about food out here in West Marin, and we're talking about harvesting your own food on the California coast with Kirk Lombard. And Kirk, I'd love for you to share yeah. a little bit about the uh, some of the dangers. You know, fishing, foraging doesn't seem to be the type of, ha- type of habit that one does lightly, and there are extremes that a fisher person will put themselves into to get a target species. How do you describe the decision-making that one goes through when you might be putting yourself into a a challenging or potentially even life-threatening situation. I would describe it as dumb. <laughs> but they still do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes you just, just forget. You know, you get so into something that you just, you know, make a, make a, take a chance that you shouldn't have taken. I don't, I don't know if that was the, my takeaway from the abalone thing. My takeaway from the abalone thing was that I was describing sort of my first abalone dive experience, and I almost drowned and then came very close to, I think, having a negative encounter with the big alpha predator in our region. I, I, I got into the boat, and, and as, I, as I was pulling my flippers off, a gigantic uh, great white went directly under our little boat. <laughs> There's a lot of, there are a lot of details in that story about signs that I was seeing, like all of a sudden, all the sea lions just exiting the water. (laughs) That's a bad feeling when you're like 60 yards away from the boat and you have to cross a deep channel to get back to where it is. And there's really nothing I could do. Just try to get back to the boat. And then I got back to the boat and I was like, man, this is this is uh, feeling really weird. I feel really weird. I feel like that was very dangerous. And I just looked down in the water, and there it was. Mm. So, you know, there's that. But I think other things were more dangerous even, like uh, things that you wouldn't think. So it's very important if you're going to go out and do night fishing on the beaches, which is something that I do a lot, that you're careful. <laughs> so, yeah, I was or thinking. Even throwing nets. You know, I mean, I you know, I had a story in the book about, I'm sure. I'm sure your listenership, being being where you guys are based, I'm sure there's people who have gone out and fished for surf smelt and thrown a net on them. And I've had this experience where I throw the net and I, I the net lands on a seal. <laughs> it's just never. It's never happy when that happens. You know, it's not that the seal gets injured, but I mean the seal. The seal basically just takes off and basically drags you to your death. Um, <laughs> And then, and then you know, the net comes free, and it's, 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 these are small nets I'm talking about, folks. You know, this is like a six foot net. And it doesn't, it doesn't. It's not a gill net. It doesn't cat. Doesn't hurt the seal. It startles the seal, and it kills you. So I, you know, I, I made a joke in the in the story I told about how I was writing this from the other side. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because I I described how like I should never have survived that. You know, I I should say that we ran into a lot of sea lions, this big bull sea lions this year while fishing for herring. And what was interesting was I have developed a technique, and, man, it's 
so it's so profound. May I share it with you? Sure. So, um, you know, as with surf smelt and um, various other small fish, the main way, if you want to actually go out of a, like as a you know citizen fisherman, you want to go out and you want to get your fishing license and go catch some of these smaller fish. You have to you have to learn how to throw a casting net, right? And that's how you catch herring, and that's how you know you can fill up a bucket with one throw if you do well. And then you should go home. <laughs> or, you know, do one more for bait for your entire year, and and then go home. But don't fill up the back of the pickup truck, as I was saying earlier. Anyway. This year, at the height of the herring spawn, I was—I uh, had located a, a nice school, and I, I got on them, but the whole place was completely choked with sea lions. And I, I showed up, and there were like 10 fishermen standing there, and they, no one was daring to throw their net in the water. Because what the sea lions do, being very smart animals, is that when the, the herring fishermen throw the net, the, the sea lions wait till it's full, <laughs> And as the guy's pulling the net in, they swim over, and one of them grabs onto the net and pulls it. And then the fisherman pulls against the sea lion, and then the net rips in half, and all the, the dazed herring swim out. And the other sea lions following behind them, they all, they all, you know, gorge themselves. And this technique was working marvelously for the sea lion. And then I had this idea. So I took my little net, the one I wouldn't really worry about if they tore it to shreds. I threw my net in, and the bull sea lion came over, and the other guys followed. And he grabbed onto my net, and I just let it go loose. I didn't. I, I did not resist. And it. Oh, you should have seen how angry it made this <laughs> sea lion. Because what he wanted me to do was resist. Because if I resist, then he pulls against it, and then the thing rips, and then he gets all my fish. <laughs> so I just. I let it go limp, and I, you know, I held onto the rope, and everybody gathered around. And they could see him. And he he came up and he barked at me. And he went back down and he grabbed the net and he shook it. And then he went back up and he barked at me again. And then the other one started barking at me. And I just let it sit there. I just, you know, like five minutes until they swam away about 30 feet away. And then I yanked it, pulled it up as fast as I could. And all my herring were in it and there were no holes. So there, there's my story about uh, what you do. The, the difference is that with, when you're in the surf throwing a net and you, you, it lands on a seal or a sea lion you can't you can't let it go loose because <laughs> you, you know it's out it's it's been extended and, you, and it's you're going with it so anyway those are my thoughts got it yeah so you do write qu- about quite a few species that are that well known and we don't see them in markets and you talk about a lot of smelt and a lot of perch yeah what are what's attractive about these species that are rather small and, and quite a bit of labor to get? Are they because they're lower on the food chain in terms of what they eat, or is it the fun of the catch? Well, I'm you know primarily I, I wouldn't I wouldn't group them all together because for instance I really enjoy um, sort of sport fishing for uh, for perch as just a catch and release thing. I love I love catching perch and looking at them, showing them to my little kid, my little boy. And then um, put them back. Although lately I've been experimenting with surf perch ceviche, and um, and I'm really liking it. But on on the whole, I'm not really you know aggressively pursuing perch because I like to eat them that much. I find the meat really mushy. Some people will scream, but I that's just my take on perch. You make a great ceviche out of it, though. They they uh, the meat does well under lime juice. Let's just put it that way. But the other ones, things like night smell, herring. Uh, Day smelt, or uh, also known as surf smelt, uh, which the numbers have been really low lately in California, the last few years. 
sardines, anchovies, and mackerel when they show up here. Uh, those things I'm very passionate about pursuing. I love all of those things. And it's just a, a taste thing. I just love the way each one of those species tastes. I, I you know, night smelt, man, oh, God, you just, uh, you batter those puppies and throw them in the, in the skillet, and they're just, they're just awesome. Eat them, eat them whole, you know. Grab the heads, dip them in your whatever sauce you made, and just eat the whole thing whole. Uh, uh, and surf smelt, I like those even better. So um, I'm rather passionate about my smelts, by the way. Yeah, I got um, that. In any case, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in any case, I, as far as, like, if, if you're looking for something beyond just that, you know, as a reason to go and pursue those things, you might want to consider that smaller schooling fishes tend to live shorter lives and feed lower on the food chain so they do not bioaccumulate the types of toxins one associates with larger, longer-lived species. Their populations, now this is, I think, true for everything except perhaps surf smelt, but their populations tend to recover uh, even after, uh, like, industrial-scale fishing. So if you're looking just to make some decisions, you know, based on sustainability, you might want to consider, you know, eating anchovies. Every now and then, don't change your whole diet, but every now and then throw some anchovies in. Don't always feed on the top of the food chain predator. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. Is this also something that you've worked into your CSA to educate consumers about in terms of varying the types of fish that they might want to consider eating? Yeah, I do. The way that it's working out best in that is that people can add them on to their orders. You know, it's a tough sell for people to, people think that they want small fish, and then it turns out that, that there's a lot of work involved in small fish. And so, you know, I'll do, I remember last year, I, you know, I'll do 600 pounds of herring, and I send them out to everybody. And, uh, well, um, some people are really enthused, and some people, even the ones that were warned that that's what they were getting, they're they're like, ah, what am I supposed to do? (laughs) So a lot of what we do is educating people, and um, we've been largely successful with that. If someone wants to sign up for my my CSA, we do a CSA, basically it's like a like a like a farm box, you know, so that you get from a farmer. I I just source. I try to source most of my stuff direct from the boat. If I can't, um, I have some suppliers that I really trust that I can get stuff from. Primarily uh, two by C, which is where my where the warehouse that a uh, space that I rent is on Pier Pier Forty Five in San Francisco. I, I rent that space. In any case, yes, I'm giving a long answer. If somebody wants small fish, they can get them from me. We have time for just about one more question, and I just wanted to ask, since you have spent so much time on the water, at the water's edge, and interacting with all these different species, what have you seen in terms of changes in the last few years? We've had some warming waters from a couple different varieties of El Nino or the mysterious blob. I'm just curious what you've seen in terms of changes in the ecosystem and the species variety that might be changing as a result of the warming water. And it might be dynamic, it might be short-term, it could be long-term, but what are you seeing? You know, it's strange. You know, there I, I found that there are always anomalous fish. I, I don't, and I don't know if we can really say from what I've seen along the coast, you know, there's like more going on that I've read about than that I've actually seen. So mm-hmm. like I've read a lot about what's going on to the kelp beds in Mendocino and Points North, but I haven't I haven't actually seen that here so much. And maybe that's because I don't spend as much time out where the bull kelp is or down on the bottom in those areas. I, I think the person to ask about this would be a sea urchin diver. But in, in any case, 
you know, we see when water is warm, we see weird things that you don't associate with, with this area. So uh, a couple of years ago, we had a lot of bonita up here, which is a fish that I associate uh, with points further south. If you were to look at what the bonita's actual range is, it would include this area. So it's not so anomalous. You know, there was like um, this past year, there was a, a sighting of a, a type of seagull called a Ross's gull. That's rare. That's, mm-hmm. like, that's bizarre. That's that's a, a weird one. Or the, the red-footed goby, uh, sorry, the red-footed booby that was in uh, Half Moon Bay this year. That, that all the um, the birders went crazy over. I think those those are, are way more anomalous sightings than really anything I've seen. I've, I've noticed one thing that's really troubled me has been the disappearance of our beautiful hypo, hypomesis pretiosis, the surf smelt that I've talked about, which is pretty much one of, I, I, I think I can go out on a limb and say that's my favorite local fish. And they're just, I can't, you know, I haven't seen one in, in three or four years. What do you think? Um, what do you attribute that to? To is it the conditions, the water conditions, or why do you think they're? Again, you know, it's a funny thing. Is like I, I, I try to not opine on this too much because, especially with small fish, there, there's a natural fluctuation in their population. I, I talk to, um, you know, the tendency is to say, "Oh, it's global warming. Let's go. Uh, it, it's the end of the world." and shut down the fishing and everything else. I don't I don't know if that's true. I know that looking at the commercial catch records for surf smelt going back I don't know, going back twenty years, uh last year was the lowest ever. But is that because the market dried up and the guys aren't cat deciding not to go catch them? Is that because maybe some of those those old smelt fishermen who have the the permits to go fish on on Gold Bluff. Maybe a couple of those guys died. I, I don't know. What is the reason that that fish uh, suddenly disappeared from the market? And why is it that I can't find them anywhere? I've talked to some old-timers down in my area, and they tell me about whole decades going by when they didn't see any surf smell. I'm new on the scene, you know. I mean, I, I, uh, I started fishing for these fish maybe 15 years ago. And, and when I started, there were a few. And then all of a sudden, there was this huge boom. And it was like every year, everybody's like, wow, they're everywhere. Oh, this is great. Yeah, we got them. Well, maybe that's just not the way they operate. Maybe they go in 20-year cycles. Like, um, you know, when, when the sardines crashed, I wrote about this in the first chapter of the book. But in, when the sardines crashed back in the day, the the uh, the popular wisdom told us that they they were fished to the brink of extinction. Well, they definitely um, caught too many. There's no doubt. You can't have two billion pounds a year being caught in one area. I mean, that's insane. However, uh, you know, um, scale deposits from the ocean floor uh, have proved conclusively, and this is this is not me as a fishmonger speaking. This is me citing um, scientific works by by marine biologists, where by doing by checking out um, core samples from the from the ocean sediments, they are able to um, get an approximation of sardine abundance on the Pacific coast going back as long as they've been here in California in the California Current. And what what they learned is that sardines populations go through intense periods of abundance and decline. 
did it help that they were catching two billion pounds a year or whatever it was? I don't know the actual number. No, it probably didn't. But would sardines have declined in 1945 anyway? Yeah, they probably would have. This is why I'm always sort of loath to pronounce the, you know, the, the the verdict on it. I there's so many things at play. It's hard to say. I I'm concerned about warming oceans. I have a feeling that surf smelt need cold, clean, crisp, perfect water. I think. We all know that they do, but I don't know. Is this is this something that happens? Is this something that happens every twenty years, every hundred years, every thousand years? I, I'm not sure. Thank you. It it's a, it puts in perspective that we're here for just a, a small period of time on the planet, and the ocean's so big and so dynamic, and so much more going on that we could possibly know. And it, it is kind of interesting to look at. Well, this is a moment in time. This is what I'm observing. Hard to pontificate. So thanks for that. Kirk, I really enjoyed hearing your perspective on foraging, and I I really enjoyed reading your book, and I, I hope that others will consider picking this up because it's it's quite fun to read, and I'm definitely reading it through a new lens as a parent of a, a son that's super interested in this, and I've never been a fisherwoman myself, and I'm really excited about trying some of these things, and thank you so much for putting this compendium book together. Very educational and and helpful. Thank you. Any last thoughts you want to share before we say goodbye to you for the afternoon? <laughs> no, I just uh, really thank you for uh, for having me on and being generous with your time. And uh, thank, you, thank you for the opportunity. You're welcome. Thanks again, Kirk. Okay. We've been talking with Kirk Lombard, the author of The Sea Forager's Guide to the Northern California Coast. And you can learn more about Kirk, his book, The CSA Membership, that him and his wife offer, and the educational tours that they do at seaforager.com. That's seaforager.com. I highly recommend it. Super fun read. And as Kirk mentioned, he has a bit of entertaining blood in his family, and he's a man of all trades of art and words and fishing, too. So pretty exciting. We are close to the end of the show here, and I just want to end with our Positively Ocean episode that is produced by Liz Fox. And quite off the topic of the shore and harvesting, but somewhat related and, and looking offshore and some of the folks that are helping to help some of those larger mammals that are, that are getting caught in some nets and, and gear offshore. So we will listen to Positively Ocean before we say goodbye from Ocean Currents. Hi, this is Positively Ocean, where we celebrate the ocean and look at what's working well. I'm Liz Fox. While the continental United States tries to keep warm through this frigid winter, it's whale birthing season in Hawaii. An estimated 10,000 humpback whales have returned to the warm waters at the Hawaiian Islands Humpback Whale National Marine Sanctuary to give birth and make more babies. That means that whale watch boats are busy, but so are rescuers like Ed Lyman. He's the whale entanglement response coordinator at the sanctuary. Whales can get caught in equipment that improves our lives, like moorings, fishing nets, and communications and research instruments. Entangled whales can drag ropes, cables, metal cages that can weigh hundreds of pounds, and that makes feeding and breathing in their annual migration of up to 6,000 miles nearly impossible. Researchers and rescuers like Lyman study how whales get stuck, what they tow, and how to safely remove the dangling and dragging debris. Lyman is working with extra precaution this year after one of his colleagues and whale rescue pioneer Joe Howlett died in July. 
Howlett had successfully disentangled a right whale in the Bay of Fundy when the giant animal made a sudden, unexpected flip. As a result, Noah temporarily suspended all whale rescues until officials reviewed their safety guidelines for this dangerous work. Although Howlett lived and worked half a world away, globally the whale entanglement responders make up a tight-knit community that meets yearly to discuss what they've learned about whale entanglements and how to improve their responses and safety. Lyman says the keys to successful disentanglement are a wide network of educated hands, maintaining a safe distance, and also using tools that keep the rescuers and animals safe. When boaters report an entangled whale, Lyman instructs them to track the whale from a safe distance while his land-based team drives to the harbor, loads the boats, and buzzes across the channel. Here's what Lyman said when I spoke to him at his office overlooking the sanctuary last spring. So we need standby support from that community. And the whale watch vessels now, the captains, they totally organize themselves in that monitoring the whale, you know, standing by so we don't lose it. And that Boy, it always brings a smile to my face when you've got the community working with you so well like that. Like a historic whaling cruise on the hunt, Lyman and his team use a large boat to get to the whale's general area, then launch a small swift boat to get closer. They hook a bright orange polypropylene ball to the trailing debris rather than harpooning the whale with floating kegs. Then, just like in Moby Dick, the team hangs onto the ball with a line and lets the whale take their skiff for a Nantucket sleigh ride. And we're doing it for a reason. It's all about assessment. So when we're towing behind the whale, we can feel its strength. If the lines are shifting, that's good news. And that changes our technique. The tools Lyman uses are designed with human and whale safety in mind. Lyman unfurls a rolled-up set of knives to reveal a modern collection of blades and grapples that won't harm the whale and will quickly sever the tie between whale and boat if needed. And even well-planned disentanglements can change at sea. Last April, Lyman's team struggled to free the season's last of three entangled humpbacks, a calf that dragged what appeared to be a typical polyblend braided line. Well, we got the cutting grapple on, and 15 minutes later, nothing's happening. And we looked down, and the, and the grapple's all fouled. That's when they pulled up the line. It was extraordinarily heavy, and they realized it was actually a 5 eighths inch coaxial communications cable. Uh, we needed a pair of bolt cutters, a large pair of bolt cutters. After two days of pursuing and tiring out the whale, the team cut the cable in two spots. Some of the material remained in the calf's mouth, and that's the best Lyman's team could safely do. And that's what we have to do. I mean, you have to look at the long run here. And while the public has a vital role in spotting distressed whales, Lyman stresses that a call to Noah's Whale Entanglement Hotline can save whales' lives and humans' lives. Here in California, the whale hotline is 1-866-767-6114. And that's an example of folks doing right by the ocean. Until next time, I'll be searching for all things positively ocean. For Ocean Currents Radio and KWMR, this is Liz Fox reporting from Pihe, Hawaii. Thank you, Liz Fox. Thank you, Liz Fox, for that Positively Ocean episode about humpback whales. And thanks also to Kirk Lombard for calling in earlier. The Sea Forager, seaforager.com. Check him out for a local CSA for seafood, as well as his fantastic book, The Sea Forager's Guide to the Northern California Coast. 
uh, Ocean Currents has a new time. I'm still reminding myself of this. Um, the first Monday of every month from 11 to 12. And you can always hear past episodes through our podcast available at cordellbank.noaa.gov, also in iTunes. And I love hearing from listeners. So if you have topics, ideas, questions, comments, please email me at cordellbank at noaa.gov. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the Bay Ocean or whatever body of water you can get into safely. This has been Ocean Currents here on Community Radio for West Marin. for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Thanks to bensound.com for royalty-free music for the Ocean Currents podcast. For more info, visit www.bensound.com.